the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. Man, this is a fun one. I had such a great time talking to Dr. Scott Lyons, and it's one of those episodes where a lot of dots are going to connect. This is where you're like, oh, that's why it's so difficult to manage this person, or oh, that's why this person is a real drain on my leadership. It's going to make a lot of sense. So I hope you enjoy it. And today's episode is brought to you by my Art of Leadership Academy. I would love to coach you personally, and the way I do that is through the Art of Leadership Academy. If you want to join, because you've heard a lot about it, or maybe this is your first time hearing about it. Check it out. Go to theartofleadershipacademy.com. You'll get instant access to all of my training, programs, the community, and me. And today's episode is brought to you by Serve HQ. Is your church struggling with engaging and onboarding volunteers? Check it out at servehq.church for easy-to-use resources. You can get started today. So Scott Lyons is a holistic psychologist, educator, and author of the book, Addicted to Drama, Healing Dependency on Crisis and Chaos in Yourself and Others. It's published by Hachette. He is a renowned body-based trauma expert, a doctor of osteopathy, and mind-body medicine expert. So he has, I'll tell you, this is just such a real conversation too, because we are going to talk about how to tell whether preaching and leadership have become addictions, how to tell whether someone is toxic, what to do with toxic people and coworkers. And then what do you do when, you know, you get that person that always has drama in their life. There's always something, there's always like always some issue. There's always some challenge, always some problem. Well, Scott used to be one of those people and now he helps people break free from those people and figure out how to deal with it. So we're going to have a lot of fun on this episode. Plus, he was a, a delightful conversation. So if you're brand new to the podcast, welcome. Really glad wherever you find yourself in the gym today, on a bike ride, on a run, in your kitchen, maybe doing yard work like I often do. Welcome. We're glad you're here. If you're enjoying this episode, just hit subscribe. It's a way that you will not miss anything. We have a killer guest lineup coming up for the rest of 2023. And where do you turn to for advice about church leadership and growth. Personally, I've worked with dozens of coaches, mentors, and consultants over the years, people who have really helped me navigate important situations and decisions. I think we all get to where we are, not on our own, but through other people. So if you're looking for the same for you and for your church, I would love to coach you personally. And the way I do that is through the Art of Leadership Academy. Each month, we have a live coaching call where you will get to ask your specific questions about the challenges or opportunities you're navigating. Plus, there's a community of thousands of church leaders just like you, some of whom are a step or two ahead. So here's a few examples of discussions going on. Thomas put this in the Academy app. He just said, hey, I'm currently putting together a preaching team and I've never been in a church that had one. What advice or resources do people have to share? Boom, tons of people jumped in. Another thread started by Carly. She asked, for those that planted a church, what changes would you make this time around if you were to plant your church tomorrow? See, if you ask questions like that, why do this alone? So stop worrying and agonizing about these things. I'm jumping in on those conversations. Other people are. And we've got it on an app on your phone or tablet or, of course, a website. The the entire academy lives there. 
So it's as simple as a click or a DM away. So to join today, go to theartofleadershipacademy.com. You'll get instant access to the training program and community. It's simply theartofleadershipacademy.com or click the link in the description for this episode. And then every church leader knows that having trained and engaged volunteers is essential to successfully accomplishing your mission. But if you're like most leaders, you struggle to do that. So what if there is a resource that made it easier? Well, there is, and it's called ServeHQ. ServeHQ gives you simple training courses via video that help you equip volunteers and develop leaders. You can create your own training as well if you'd like to do that, or just pull from their video library. They have easy-to-use automation tools that make onboarding fast, and you can do that for volunteers and church members as well. You can create automatic sequences that enroll learners in online courses and uh, really, really help your staff onboard people well. Check it out. Go to servehq.church. That's servehq.church. And now, my conversation with Scott Lyons. This one's going to be fun. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to have a conversation with you. Well, so am I, because you seem to share something in common, your fascination, and I guess you're recovering from it as well. A lot of people I know, a lot of leaders I know, a lot of churches and organizations I know seem to struggle with this addiction to chaos and drama. Can you explain what you mean by that? And yeah, yeah like what, what is, how do you know you're addicted to drama? <laughs> Typically you don't know, which is part okay. of the issue. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. But, but, you know, when we think of drama, it's the unnecessary turmoil. It's mm. the, it's the intensification. It's the extru- making something more extreme. It's the taking a molehill and making a mountain out of it. It's mm. the performative e- extreme of, of, of a feeling and a reaction. It's a disproportionate reaction to what's actually happening in the environment. Typically. Right. You know, um, that, that's, you know, and an addiction means a dependency on it. Mm. And what, and this is the part that's so hard for, I think, a lot of us to understand conceptually, because, you know, if we think about it, like, why would anyone be dependent on things that make them suffer? Things mm. that bring them conflict, things that bring them more stress and challenge. And, and we have to turn to the physiology, which we can today, to really understand why. But the dependency or an addiction means they become reliant on the hits of it. It mm. often is, an addiction is often about filling a void, filling a pain, a void that is within oneself and masking a pain, numbing it out. And so if someone becomes dependent on cocaine or any type of drug or alcohol or gambling or sex or stress, which is what we're talking about when we're talking about drama, it means that it's doing a certain, it serves a purpose. Mm. And that purpose is it's occupying their attention, distracting them from the underlying pain and trauma, and creating some level of numbness and giving them some level of sensation and feeling that rises above that numbness. Because otherwise, we just feel kind of like dead man walking like a walking ghost. And that gives us that sense of walking ghost, that sense of vacantness is very unsettling. It's very painful. I mean, we know it on some level of like, if you've ever had an episode of depression or sad for a long period of time where it feels some level of stagnancy and numbness, 
And you're like, do I even exist? Do I matter? Mm. Do I have purpose? And you, and and I think often in those moments we might even lose our relationship to spirituality. We feel cut off from anything more than our our pain body. So if we put those things together now, it's that there is something about the intensification, the turmoil, the stress that we become dependent on, we become reliant on as a way of essentially surviving. Gotcha. Okay, so you know, probably your book did a, a your book addicted to drama did a great job playing it out, like more than I thought was possible. I thought you did a great job, but probably the concept that I got introduced to years ago in leadership, you talk to leaders and they're like, "What are you doing today?" It's like I'm fighting fires. And then, you know, they're fighting fires every day. And eventually it's like, well, maybe you're an arsonist. Like, are there that many fires? <laughs> right. So like, are you the arsonist? And you're right. Is that a sense of like, if you're always fighting fires, if there's always a crisis, if there's always challenges and I mean, stuff happens. I had a day yesterday where I'm like, okay, whoa, I didn't see that coming. Yeah. But that's not most days. But yeah. if you're always fighting fires, are you an arsonist? Does that have something to do with it? I love that saying so much. I've never heard it put that way. (laughs) It's so brilliant. Yeah, because it's like, you know, are you the problem? And it's like, Mm. which is such a, you know, are you the drama, essentially, Mm -hmm. is another Mm -hmm. way of saying that. And the answer is probably. You know, to some level, we all have the capacity to use the tools of drama. Mm. It, It helps us you know, it's called auto-regulation. We stay away. It helps us keep away from being in contact with our feelings. Hmm. And it's distracting. And yeah. we become enticed in someone else's drama. And that's distracting from ourselves. It's entertaining at times. It's inner, it's, it's like, um, if, I don't know if you've ever, I know you, you bike, right? Yeah, yeah, I cycle. Okay. Uh-huh. So I'm a runner, and, um, but I've, I've done a little bit of biking. And you know that high you get? that endorphic high when you've mm-hmm. done a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? Stress does the same thing. Hmm. So in that first stage of a stress response, which is called activation, we get an endorphic high. It gives us a sense of power. It's the same thing, like, I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a, a fit of rage or anger. And oh, it's like, perhaps, <laughs> one, I don't know, as a leader, maybe theoretically, once. Theoretically, sure. This morning. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and yeah. it's this, if you tune into it a little bit, besides the emotional overwhelm of it, you might also feel some level of power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for those who have a history of pain or trauma or powerlessness, which is a lot of us, then going towards those big states, those big emotional states, specifically stress states that give us this sense of like we have this extra battery pack on us, this liveliness, then we're going to become attached to that. So it's interesting, you sort of confess, admit in the book that this was part of your story too, right? You would say, oh, wait a minute, I'm addicted to drama. And then you wrote this amazing treatise about it and how to get well. How how did that manifest in your life, Scott? Look, I mean, there was always something. Mm. Something was always going to go wrong. Something and that's a sign, right? Go, Somebody who like there's and I've yeah. I've got friends and other mm-hmm. people I know who are like, yep, there's always something. It doesn't yeah. matter what it is. This is just always something, right? Yeah, 
It's always something. And it's and it <laughs> is always something because part of what happens when you have this history that is yeah. perhaps a threat or you know stressful, pervasive stress or trauma in your life is that you become more attuned to your own negative bias. You become it's like your senses, you get locked in to being on the lookout for what will and can go wrong. Mm. And and I say that as in, seriously, you get locked in. Your senses, your eyes, your smell, your hearing, your sense of time, your sense of touch, all look for threat. And you're going to only be able to see or be vigilant towards potential or actual threat. And if there is no threat, that creates a sense of dissonance or anxiety or dis-ease or being out of sync. So what do you do? You go seek it. And if you can't find it, you go create it. Because what that does is it offers a sense of, I am right. I am in sync with the threats of the world. Wow. So this is a little bit like, could it also, this is not what your book is about. This is not what your research is about. But is that a little bit like hypochondria? It's like, I just can't be well or Mm. not. Is that different? That's a different disorder. It's a little bit different um, in the sense that, um, I mean, there there is something about a pervasive, what I would say about hypochondria is that sometimes that it becomes, that is instilled because it becomes the love language. Like if you grew up in a house of chaos or a, an environment of chaos, and the only times you're seen is when something is wrong, then that becomes the currency of love. You're ill, you are witnessed, you are loved. And so, yeah. And, you know, for those of us who, again, have some propensity for drama, on inside, and I can say this because I lived it for most of my life, there is a sense of dis-ease, like something is wrong and you can't quite put your finger on it. And part of it is the pain that is literally stuck in your body, creating a mm. toxic, stagnated environment. And so there is something wrong, but you, but you, you can't consciously track that. So, uh, you know, when, you can, when something is wrong, usually in the environment or with someone else, if you're in a relationship, then it feels validated. And in hypochondria, it's the same thing. It's like, oh, you, you're attending to me. I matter. I, va- I have value in this world. And so I'm going to potentially be more attuned towards what could be wrong. So how did um, there's always something addiction to drama manifest in your life? What would be some symptoms that would, yeah. would have shown up in you before you started to pay attention to this? Well, thankfully, I was put into the arts very young. So I had a, a venue, a depository for a lot of my big reactionary feelings and <laughs> energy. You were supposed to be dramatic. <laughs> I got to be dramatic. I was rewarded for it. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was that excitement of going in front of a thousand people and performing or filming something as a you know child actor. But that, that sort of excitement um, didn't, didn't, and the need for it didn't subside. It wasn't, it wasn't met 
by just doing the performance. Like I was looking for it in the rest of my life. I would pick fights with people a lot. I would over-exaggerate and intensify stories. I would fantasize about things as strange as like telling other people bad news. Hmm. Hmm. And it wasn't that I wanted those bad things to happen. I just wanted to play, like I just, it was, I mean, the thing about fantasy that we might not realize is that a stress response will happen whether it's real or imagined. You think about a snake or you see a snake, you're going to have a physiological response. So our fantasy is a playground for where we get to fester and create drama. Like every time I'm walking down the street and I think about an ex, or I'm in the bathtub and I think about my grocery list, or I think about a fight I might have with someone because they didn't do this or that, or I'm at work and maybe some, I think about like, oh, if they don't get this done, this is what I'm going to say to them. And this is what they're going to say back. And you, you're going through the whole <laughs> show that you're writing in your head okay, and it fair. never happened. Fair. Yeah. Right? You've done that. Yeah. And meanwhile, mm-hmm. you're in the bathtub. What are you doing? <laughs> Creating more tension in a environment where you're trying to relax. Wow. Wow. And yet we've all done it. So, you know, we're, we're 15 minutes into this conversation. People are probably going, am I, am I addicted to drama or not? And when I read your characteristics, I felt called out. And then I thought, don't show my wife, don't show my sons. Because uh, they're going to go, you're addicted to drama. And perhaps worse 20 years ago than I am now, but there are elements my wife will often say to me, you're so dramatic, dramatic. Like, you know, let me give you an example. Yeah, please. I know, I know um, pastors, a lot of pastors listening to this, they're getting up to give their message. There's yeah. always something wrong before their message talking for, to a friend, right? The camera angle isn't quite right. The light level isn't quite right. The band isn't quite right. The worship leader is a little bit off and it gets in their head. And sometimes they say it out loud and then they get told they're leaking. But like, you know, to me, I've eventually figured out, man, those are my nerves yeah. externalizing on other people. And my job is to show up and thank the people who are here, yeah. smile at them, be gracious and channel my nerves in some other direction that's healthy. Or, you know, there was, like, I, I have that tendency in me. If I look back over my first 20 years of leadership, I, I've said, I probably throw a stick of dynamite into stuff every five years, blow it up and start over again. And some of that's good. It's a strategy. Some of that's not good. It's a strategy. It's <laughs> it a works. strategy. I'm not sure. It got us somewhere. <laughs> got it. Yeah, I mean, I really hear you when you describe this experience of going, you have some nerves, you have some vulnerability. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you are, instead of being in contact with those feelings or that vulnerability, you're depositing it into situations or other people to which then stoke your own fire to be more avoidant of those feelings and of that vulnerability. Mm. Oh, wow. I don't know if you follow the Enneagram. I'm an eight and our greatest fear is intimacy and vulnerability. So there you go. There you go. Uh, I've gotten better at it. (laughs) So what are some other symptoms? You tell some great stories in the book of actual client. I think they're actual clients or maybe they're composite stories of people who really struggled with this. But give us just a range of examples, characteristics so that Everybody listening here can go, yeah, that's me. Or if it's not them, it's like, oh, I know who that is on my staff. I know who I'm married to or 
That's my mom. That's my mother-in-law. That's my mother-in-law. Yeah. So that they can recognize what we're talking about. Exactly, Scott. Uh, Yeah. So there's, there's signs from the inside and signs from the outside and, and they're different. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's an important thing for us to discern because on the outside, it's like, Ooh, there's always some crazy urgency. They're walking down the street. They have nowhere to go, but they are rushing. There's this bulldozing, there's this mm. overscheduling and then complaining about the overscheduling, even though they were the ones who scheduled it. There's this overcomplicating task, especially in the office. It's like something that should just be like, you put a stamp on the envelope, you put the envelope in the chute, but it becomes a whole ordeal. They mm. overcomplicate it. There's a lot of gossiping, um, you know, those those are certainly big ones. Um, They catastrophize. They really focus on the negative. It's hard for them to be with or attend to the positive. Are ones? I mean, do you have ones from, you know, I can name some more, but do you have ones from just, you know, clearly being witness to some people who are addicted to drama? Well, I think there's a couple of cases in your book, and I read it a few weeks ago, where it's just the person who always has a crisis in their life, yeah. right? There's always something wrong. And I think sometimes that's a leader, but often we end up serving a lot of people like that. Like you said, if it's not one thing, it's another. So what, what is, like, describe that a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, that goes back to, and it's hard because if, if from the inside, they would be like, it's not my fault. I want peace. Mm-hmm. I want ease. I want comfort. So... You know, like, why Why would I be um, the one, the culprit of this? And the reality is, is because they have sought the conditions or created the environmental conditions that would create that scenario. And that's hard to recognize. It's like, you know, look, you can't help if someone gets in a car accident that you love. We're not talking about that. No. You know, we're talking about like... that's probably not happening every other month, right? No. But we're talking about like, oh, I got into another breakup or I got into another Mm -hmm. fight. You know, relationships are fast and furious to begin with Mm -hmm. and fast and furious in the end. There's, it's a very reactionary. There's a lot of intensified language, exclamation marks, Mm -hmm. using additional adjectives than are what's needed. There's, um, there's a disproportion between, like I said in the very beginning, the, what, what's the reaction that's called for and the energy needed for that reaction and what the person actually does. So it's like disproportionate, like disproportionate things happen all the time, right? mm -hmm. Like that does happen. Mm -hmm. Mm. We call that dysregulation. Right. So my neighbor was too loud, but it's really irritating me. Yeah. Yeah. He was a three. I'm an 11, right? (laughs) Are you really into the anagrams? (laughs) Yeah. It's like, it's like blowing out a birthday candle with a fire hose. Mm. It doesn't, makes sense from Uh the outside it's like oh it's sprinkling so we go into the hurricane shelter it's like you know those i'm i'm clearly exaggerating or am i um (laughs) or am i (laughs) maybe i might have gone into a hurricane shelter when it was sprinkling (laughs) out um you know living in florida you just never know you never know from from the inside it's different symptoms and this is the wild thing is like and, and what makes it such a challenging and uh, for people to be such a challenging experience for people to be empathetic to, yeah, because it wears and tears on those around 
the person who's addicted to drama. But on the inside, they feel like a victim. They feel like the world is attacking them and closing in on them. They feel like they never have enough time. They feel that sense of urgency, like the world is pushing at them. They um, don't feel like they have agency and control. Mm. And, and, and there's a constant sense of dis-ease, anxiety. Yes. So I'm going to read through some of the symptoms that you've yeah, got in your do. book, Addicted to Drama. And I'd like you to comment on these. I'll read them to you in a series because they're so subtle. That's why I'm like, oh, this is about other people. And I know people who are addicted to drama. And then I'm like, page 14, do I have a propensity for drama? And I'm like, burn the book. Like, let's just get rid of this right now, Scott. Okay. But I'm going to, I'm going to read these out. Uh, this is me in my thirties. I feel anxious or bored when things are calm. Uh Oh, not so much anymore. Um, compliments or validation are difficult for me to receive. I feel more alive or thrive under pressure. Whoops. Uh, I recruit others to my state of being, pulling them into my whirlwind. I'm preoccupied with fixing things. It's like, whoo. Okay. Um, I'm going to pass by a few others and let's see. Oh, yeah. Um, my attention wanders in the middle of conversations which is really an interesting one. I didn't think that that would be a sign of drama. Um, I've seen this in other leaders. During intense situations, I feel a sense of agency or control. Actually, I would say that describes me. Um, Oh, this one, yeah. I live in the past and the future rather than the present, though compulsive worry, repetitive thoughts, stories, or projecting trouble in the future through uh, compulsive worry, repetitive thoughts, stories are projecting trouble into the future. Not so much the negative, but I do live in the past and in the future. I've seen this in other leaders. I don't feel this way, but I sense that another person or the world conspires against me, and I wonder why me. Um, and let me see, there was another one. Oh yeah, I always fill my schedule to the brim and then feel overwhelmed by it. I get caught up in an emotional whirlwind and feel hungover afterward. That's every Monday for most church leaders. And um, yeah, let's leave it there. Okay, there's a whole bunch more, but I'm like, I love Whoo. that you, I love that you read those because you know, I, I, I was like, oh, those are good, and I'm like, yeah, oh yeah, I wrote, wrote those. those. <laughs> <laughs> Early on in the book, they weren't, you know, you had to get to chapter whatever at the end. But that's that's like when I read that, I'm like, oh, a lot of us get caught by that, and mm. I didn't realize like in some of those, I'd say three quarters of those could be seen as a strength. Yeah, I'm thinking yeah. about the future. Mm-hmm. Um, I am a busy guy. I don't get overwhelmed anymore. I wrote my book on that last time. But, you know, all of those I am somewhat familiar with and one or two I've definitely seen in other people as well. So yeah. why are those signs yeah. that you're addicted to drama? Yeah. I mean, here's the thing about it is that we can go, oh, well, if someone's just overscheduling, couldn't they just be addicted right. to work? Or yeah. if they're just rushing all the time, maybe they have somewhere to go. And it all, all comes back to how is this affecting your physiology? Is it inducing a stress response? Mm-hmm. And then we're looking at the dependency of those hits of stress. So is right. the urgency, the rush, the like making something more intense in that way creating a stress response? 
Yes. Mm-hmm. Is, um, is overscheduling in that way inducing a stress response? Yes. Is pulling other people into your crisis, throwing logs on your fire and upping the, upping the stress response in your own body? Yes. Is mm. gossiping upping your stress response? Yes. So mm. they're all doing the same physiological thing. And then the, there's the dependency on that physiological process. And you asked about like attention. So, yeah. you know, if, if our attention is constantly wandering, yeah, we could call it ADHD or something of mm-hmm. that nature or ADD rather. But there's a way of like, what are you wandering to? Are you, mm-hmm. you know, can you be present with another individual in another situation? Or are you, is the wandering a way of avoiding the intimacy? Mm-hmm. So, and so the wandering towards something that's, um, stressful, perhaps, or even uh, gleeful, it's having a physiological response mm-hmm. that helps you avoid. And you're saying, I believe, that these pathways, I mean, we're learning so much about the brain in the last 10, 20 years, but these pathways, this, like, there's one guy, sadly, he died at 49 on a ski hill of a heart attack, which is too bad. But Craig Jutilla, one of the first episodes of this podcast years ago, talked about being an adrenaline junkie, you know, and that, and I I would say I'm probably a recovering performance addict and a recovering adrenaline junkie. I just love to go, go, go and didn't have a brake pedal. Then I burned out and I think God put on the brakes. It's like, all right, so I got to learn how to pump them from time to time. Um, But, you know, I was very uncomfortable with silence, much better at it today. But like you're saying, these pathways get worn into your brain to the point where you are uncomfortable with silence or calm or peace or like what? Silence, comfort, silence, comfort, peace, stillness feels like an attack. Ooh. It is a threat to the individual's hypervigilance to be on the lookout for threat. Wow. So it is a threat to being on the lookout for threat. And we, um, that's one piece of it. So when I talked about, you know, that, that first stage of a stress response, giving you that sort of, um, that, that high that feels empowering, it also reduces pain. Hmm. So it is a pain reliever. So, and so let's remember that underlying any addiction is a pervasive pain. Mm -hmm. So any, these things like stress or drugs that take us away, numb the pain, we become dependent on. We have a whole brain circuitry that says, let's reward this because it is really awful to be in chronic pain. Hmm. Um, And you know, there are certain conditions, especially things like loneliness and isolation, which is very much part of an addiction to drama. Those who are addicted to drama, one of the internal symptoms is they constantly feel alone, even in the company mm. of other people. Mm. And so we know that you are more likely to become hooked on something in the absence of belonging, in the absence of a sense of connection. So they're already set up in this way to become hooked on the thing that relieves the pain and fills the void. 
and by fills the void, I mean occupies you in a way that keeps you out of connection with the pain, with the trauma, with having to feel your feelings. So that avoidance technique. We build, there are certain stages or elements that need to be present in an addiction. Things like tolerance, things like withdrawal, yeah, things like negating social consequences for the drug because you need it. And if you look around and you think of anyone you know addicted to drama, do you think they're taking consideration of the social consequences of their behavior? No, their impact on others is pretty mm. low on their self-awareness scale. Yeah. They don't and understand. It's a massive consequence because yeah. their their stress response, their being in the throes of a drama and crisis and chaos not only affects the environment, but every single person in the environment because stress is contagious. Wow. Wow. So that's one element. Tolerance is real. Um, I used to think that I had a lot of capacity for stress. Hmm. And most of us probably do. Oh, yeah, I can handle so much stress. It's hmm. not that we can handle it. There's a big difference between capacity and having built a tolerance level like we might for alcohol. And so like in my childhood, I, you know, by the time I was in my 20s, I had built a high threshold tolerance. And the tolerance means that we need more to feel more. Right. And, and right. Right. And in this case, we need more stress to feel more alive, to rise above the level of numbness or to rise above the threshold of numbness that's created as a protective mechanism for the underlying pain. Mm. So by the time in my 20s, I was in the midst of a divorce. I was in mm. grad school. I was directing an opera, then the biggest show work of my life. It was with this huge rock band. I was constantly nervous about getting fired and would they mm. overdose? <laughs> you know, like, and I was in, you know, in a fight with a good friend and I had lost my health insurance, you know, like yada, 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 add, add more, more, more. And I was like, I can handle it. I can handle it. And then I OD'd. I OD'd like, on literally? stress. On well, I did okay. too. Yeah. I, I did. Um, I did go into cardiac distress and, and oh die gosh. for a few minutes. Oh, wow. but but I thought all that time I had built up this capacity for stress that I was some like you know monk, <laughs> as opposed to I had become so dependent on it and needed so much more to feel more, and I crashed. Mm-hmm. I burnt out. Another way of saying crash is burning out because we had added so many stressors to our life because we were needing it to get the hit, to get the hit that is big enough to feel alive. And I crashed. And that happens often with those who have an addiction. And I... Part of an addiction and drama is you will go through withdrawal symptoms. You named it. Mm-hmm. It's the Monday after the service. It's mm-hmm. that big performative experience. It's emotional. It's energetic. It's exciting. It's, it's revelatory. And then it's nothing. Mm-hmm. And you feel mm-hmm. bored and you feel anxious and you feel worthless. And that's all part of the withdrawal response that is part of the addiction to drama. And so what do you do 
to avoid the boredom, the sense of purposelessness, the sense of nothingness, the sense of anxiety, the feeling of anxiety. You go get another hit of drama. Wow. Huh. I, you know, honestly, I think at this point you're reading the mail of about 80, 90% of the people listening to this podcast. Like, I really do. <laughs> I really do. Yeah, this is, this is, this is really, really helpful and diagnostic. And I mean, I've spent the last 18 years trying to get off that treadmill mm. and with some success, I don't think total success, but with definitely some success, um, you talk about the relationship between drama addiction and burnout. You hinted at it just a minute ago. Um, can you explain more about how those are connected? Yeah. There's um, some great research that came out of Argentina that was studying why some actors, after they perform, have burnout or w- withdrawal symptoms from the performance mm. and why others don't. And, and NYU then later did a follow-up study um, that's saying that there's an emotional residue that for some doesn't get metabolized. And it leaves us in kind of a drunk state, a hangover state. It's called emotional hangover, by the way, hmm. the research. Mm-hmm. And yeah. we um, call it preaching hangover, but same Preaching thing. hangover. Yeah. Okay, we're on yeah. the same page here. Uh-huh. Isn't it amazing how like there might not have been research like in the peer-reviewed scientific world, but we all know it. We all know addiction to drama. We all know it. We didn't need my book to know that there's an addiction to drama. It, my right. book is just there to like validate it and hopefully help some folks who are either addicted to drama or in proximity to those who are. But yeah, so that, that hangover, that withdrawal symptom comes as part of the hangover. You know, we want to avoid the, just like, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't drink, um, mm. but I, I have... I never really got a, I maybe had a hangover once in my life. When, sure. Um, but it, I just, <laughs> it was, I actually remember it now. It was my sister's <sighs> wedding and I didn't, I just have never really drank. And my cousin spiked my juice um, at the, the party the night before. And so the next day I had such a hangover from, you know, the sugar and the alcohol and, you know, the lack of control that I even knew I was drinking. I remember my, my mom came over. I was hiding under a table at my sister's wedding, just like moaning. And like, and she was like, you have to bite the dog that bit you. It's the only way to get through this. <laughs> and so they went and got me another drink. And I, oh. I'm just remembering this story now. And it's so funny oh, because man. like I had been doing that all my life with drama, but never, never drugs. I mean, drama is a drug. It's a free, accessible <laughs> drug to that gets you high. Yeah, yeah. You know, it it serves the same purpose. Wow. And I think what preachers would describe and communicators, and it's funny, preaching is different than communication. I speak at a lot of conferences. I don't preach as much these days, but I preached recently and it's like, you just put so much out there, there's nothing left. And people yeah. talk about the Sunday nap, Monday being brain fog, et cetera. And then eventually yeah. it comes back. But help me understand in that study from Brazil, Peru, where was it? Uh, uh, Argentina. 
Argentina. Argentina. None of the above. None of the above. None of the above. (laughs) Argentina, pardon me, my South American listeners. Um, In Argentina, that that study in in Argentina, you said that there are some people who don't have that kind of hangover. And what what is the difference? You know, I don't remember all the research on specifically Hmm. why people didn't. I was much more attracted to the idea of like people did. Oh, right, Um, right, right. (laughs) I didn't know that anyone didn't. So I, I think it's less like it was on a scale. Yeah, sure, sure. And so like, I think some people um, metabolize, methylate their emotions more easily than others. I, I can even imagine it related to more of, you know, when I talk about methylation or metabolism or any of those, that there might actually be a physiological correlation. I don't think they did that much of the research. I think they got really excited that there is emotional residue and focused more on that. What does that mean, emotional residue? Like that, that the event is shorter than the emotional response. Ah, there you go. That's yep. the residue. It's lasting longer than the stimulus. But then you need another hit. So we might go into the office Monday or Tuesday and stir something up or, you know, become that arsonist or, yeah. I mean, when you have a residue, so the, the, like a residue like that, but there's no conditions, there's no circumstances that justify it. Why not go create the circumstances that will again, justify the, the emotional residue that has stayed much longer in stagnation than the experience or event itself. You make the argument, I think, that uh, drama addiction affects decision making mm-hmm. and other leadership responsibilities. In what ways, Scott? Well, let's look at us. You know, in in a stress response, one of the things that happens is there's less blood flow to your prefrontal cortex, like mm-hmm. where decision making is happening. <laughs> so you you're know, cutting off your blood flow to your brain. You're cutting off That's your brilliant. blood flow to your decision making. That's oh, for sure, because you're in good. more of a primal response. Yeah. And so if you're more chronically in a primal response, then you're not going to be, a, a, you know, really sending blood, sending cellular, you know, like cellular food. That's not quite the right way to say it. But, um, you know, the, the things we need to function in an area of our body or brain, we're not going to put more of the effort and the energy and the resources there. Hmm. We're going to put them into exactly where we need them to navigate, whether it's a thread or a challenge that we've created that we're in. So yeah, decision-making is not easy from that state. Mm. We don't make our best decisions, even though some people, you know, in the the research on flow Mm. and decision-making, which is interesting, it requires what they call a balance of sympathetic and parasympathetic, a balance of some activation and an ability to be containing it and, and settled within it. Mm-hmm. And, and then we make, actually, in that research, the best decisions because we have some energy to help us make the decisions and still a calm enough mind that we can see our choices. Because we lose agency in that state of constant chronic drama. We lose our ability to register and see our choices. I think most people who listen to this podcast, most leaders would identify 
with that state of flow, whatever they yeah. call it. But, you know, as somebody who's written five books, written a bajillion messages and talks and that kind of stuff, that takes deep concentration. Oh, yeah. And when you get there, you can't be hyper-stimulated. You can't be dramatic. You just have to be in that, that state where you're not sedated, but you're not elevated either. Right. And when you, when you hit that state, and for me, it happens in the morning, I call it the green zone. It's bliss. And so I guess, you know, on on the, I mean, I want to get into more of the symptoms and then I want to get into the recovery because I'm almost saying, so how do you get out of this? So we're going to come back to that. Let's put a pin in that. But you also talk about the drama triangle, which was really interesting. My wife's been doing some research Uh and some work in, in this area. And uh, I found it fascinating because as soon as she described the triangle, it had a different name in the work that she was doing. Yeah. I'm like, oh, that describes so much. Can you explain the drama triangle and what that means? Yeah, so the drama triangle comes from um, a social uh, theorist or psychological theorist, um, Cartman. And there's, it, it's really saying like, what are the roles we take when we're in mm. conflict? Right. And um, he, he looks at the three main roles and how they play out with each other. And, and those three roles are the victim, mm. which we all might know a little bit of. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, uh, the victim, the persecutor, and the um, rescuer. Mm. Uh, the rescuer is like the hero. The, uh, there's a little bit more like, I'm going to save you. I'm going mm-hmm. to avoid my own stuff and what's happening with me to attend to you. We call that codependency. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's also the rescuer will often enable the victim. Mm-hmm. And the victim is the one who's saying, poor me. Why is everyone against me? You know, and if you're listening, you've ever like found yourself in any of these roles in conflict, welcome to being human. Exactly. You know, everything is futile. Um, uh, There's there's a sense of helplessness. Things are not going to go. There's a sense of powerlessness. And and that's, um, and they often will seek, especially the rescuer, to throw logs on their fire. So one of the symptoms we you read from my book was that they'll pull people into their crisis. And that that is the way that those who are addicted to drama feel most safe with intimacy hmm. is when there is a shared crisis. Hmm. Call that drama bonding. Hmm. And they it, it's the only safe way in which they f- can be in relation with another person. And wow. they feel like they're validated because people are in that same zone of crisis as they are. They feel in sync. Thus, hmm. a false sense of belonging. And this this plays out in a lot of organizations. Oh I'm my sure. gosh! Yeah, right? this this is this is very much an organizational psychology too. Where you know, and then you have the persecutor, like the often the boss where you it's like the villain it's it's the blame they're really into deflecting and projecting they're not taking any responsibility mm-hmm. either and um it's often angry and negative and and um there and, and the sense of superiority that comes in those mm-hmm. and we can switch roles like we might mm-hmm. find ourselves identifying or defaulting 
to one particular aspect of that drama triangle or one role in conflict. But it's so easy to go from being the victim to then being the persecutor. Yeah. Or of being for the persecutor and then becoming the victim. Often the rescuer is on is is kind of on the outside. And we we might think about how that shows up is like someone comes to your office and gossips. Do you gossip with them? Mm. Oh, you might say you hate gossip. You might say you hate the drama, but they go, oh, th- they said this and they said that. And then you ask, well, then what did they say? Yeah, exactly. You're yeah. enabling the drama. Mm. We don't think, often we might think, oh, I'm rescuing. I'm here to support everyone. I just want to help. I'm a martyr. But the reality is you're, ena- you're enabling. Mm-hmm. You're actually also addicted to the drama. You're just wearing the mask of the hero. So the victim likes the drama. The persecutor likes the drama. And the, even the rescuer kind of likes the drama. Oh, and I hate I the think drama, that profile. but need the drama. Need it, need it. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And what is weaponized empathy? Oh, that's a term I made up from <laughs> being in so many therapy sessions and... Yeah, I, I love the term. I, I actually have a T-shirt coming out with it. <laughs> weaponized because I was like, empathy. It's like it's such a great term. It is. But weaponized empathy is basically an eye for an eye. It's the inability to feel validated when someone apologizes. Mm. So you make them feel, you create the circumstances to make them feel what you feel. So an example might be, um, I have a client who was talking about this recently. And he said, oh, I was on a walk with my parent, my mom, and I texted my brother, happy birthday. My mom felt like I was disrespecting her. And so she just said, that's it, I'm done. And started walking Hmm. back to the house. Drama flare number one. Uh, You know, clearly feeling rejected, clearly having emotions, but just threw the arms up, started walking back. Then the mom came back and knew the exact thing to say to my client to trigger him. Mm. Oh, (laughs) I think you're really becoming more codependent with your partner, is what the mom said, which is the exact trigger, the very thing they're worried about. So then my client is all stirred up and feeling like shameful and rejected by their partner. And so what the mom did in that moment was in her inability to be with her own feelings, and she's infamous for weaponized empathy, is to create the circumstances so that her kid would know the pain that she felt when she was, quote unquote, rejected. I feel bad. Now I'm going to make you feel bad. Yes. Mm. Hmm. And it's, it is like, even if you were to say, I'm sorry, no, that's not enough because I actually can't receive your sorry. I would have to be vulnerable enough to open up the windows of my very locked house to receive your apology. That's too vulnerable because then I'd be too susceptible to future threats, to future pains. And so if I can't accept it, I can create the chaos needed in your life and your environment so that you feel the pain I feel locked away in my house. Okay. Weaponized so, empathy. 
So this feels like an inescapable, like, you know, mm -hmm. it's, 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 it's sort of Jean-Paul Sartre, hell is other yes. people, right? Yes. <laughs> you end up, the, you end up in that place. There's, there's no win. There is mm -hmm. no win. Mm -hmm. You know, like I've, I've certainly been in scenarios with some, even someone recently where they were upset by someone I was working with or teaching with and they felt like they didn't like them. And I said, I'm sorry, that's, I'm so sorry you had that experience with them that, um, that hasn't been my experience and I'm holding your truth and mine. They're like, how dare you invalidate my truth? <laughs> and I was like, I hear how it can feel like I'm invalidating your truth to also represent mine. And they're like, you don't hear anything I say. You know, and just like no matter, and, th and then I stopped and I said, you're right, I'm not hearing you. And I'm really sorry for that. And is there anything I can do to support you in this moment? No, it's too late. You don't hear anyone. You're not a good therapist. You know, like no matter what I say, it's logs on their fire. It's a no-win situation because what they really need in that moment is to enact the same, the hurt that they feel inside them that they're unable to really be with or process or metabolize. They need me to be in sync with them and until I am in the same woe, in the same uck, in the same pain, in their perception, then there is no justice. Hmm. Hmm. So tell us there's a way through, doctor. Like, <laughs> this is nope. this just... No, nope, uh, there's nope, no way nope. through. <laughs> well, thanks for being with us today. Yeah, have Scott a good day. Lines. Yeah, yeah, have a good day. Um, you know, like, what, what do you do when you're in this? Because I think lots of light bulbs are going off, yeah. on, I should say, and people are going, gosh, I see this everywhere now. And I see it in myself. I see it in others. I see it in my staff. I see it in the congregation. I see it in the community. I see it in my customers. You know, that customer that's completely unpleasable, um, the person who's always got a problem, the person who sends you an angry email every month because yep. there's something you did this time that isn't quite right. And it's like, nobody really knows how to solve this stuff. So what do you do? I think knowledge is power. I don't think it's absolute mm -hmm. power, but mm -hmm. I think understanding where this is coming from yeah. can even give you empathy towards that individual and empathy towards yourself. Like when that person was saying that, I was to me, I was like, oh, oh honey, I wrote a book on this. Like, <laughs> I'm not affected. Like, I know yeah. you want to get me to that point where I'm affected, but I I not. Like, I'm yeah. I'm not willing to to enter into that pain body so that you can feel validated and seen. That's not it, that is my boundary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I sent them a copy of my book. Um <laughs> But knowledge has power. It, it's going, okay, this is what's happening. Oh, they are revving themselves back up. This has nothing to do with me or the actual circumstances. This is their physiological dependency. Can I take a step back from getting enmeshed in that? Can I take a step back from feeling like, oh, maybe this is me? Or, or can I take a step back from they're a bad person? Because that does something to me to sit with this idea that they're just an attention-seeking bad human being, that they're evil, that they're manipulative. They're not. They're doing the best they can in their survival mode. So there's a lot of reprieve that can come from just understanding what is happening in the circumstances that are occurring. 
And, um, you know, from if, if you are someone who has an addiction to drama, then there is there's certainly, there's a pathway to healing. You know, there's an awareness, there's, there's interrupting the, the patterns, the revving. There's a whole process of looking underneath the hood, so to speak, and getting back to the original pains or you know, generational trauma or trauma, developmental trauma or whatever it is that is the thing that has been avoided or the tendency to avoid contact, emotional contact with yourself. You know, certainly if there's been a, not, a lot of neglect in your life, you're not going to have a lot of access to your own feelings and needs. Mm. There's, there's a whole process of needing to let go of the identity, whether that identity has been the persecutor, the rescuer, the victim. Mm. Because you, if, you know, based on our life experience and the, what we have needed to confirm our life experience, we have taken on an identity like victim. And if we stay in the victim mentality, in the victim identity, then we're stuck, even if we have processed that trauma underneath, even if we have gotten out of the constant reflex of, of the things we do that we stress ourselves out by. And there's a whole process in healing as well about relearning intimacy Hmm. Uh, uh, that vulnerability and connection is safe. So we get out of that isolation state so that we become less prone to the dependency. And, you know, for those who are with someone addicted to drama, like first recognize their experiences become your experiences. Despite what you want or think, you cannot fight physiology right <laughs> you can't i'm sorry like bless even if you have meditated for 25 years you cannot override your physiology to that so level. what does that mean it means that if they're having a stress response so are you mm -hmm. it is built into your genes into your dna it is part of your evolutionary survival if i come in to your church and I mm -hmm. run in and I'm panting and I'm intense and my muscles are tight. Every single person in there is going to mirror my response for their own survival mm -hmm. because maybe there's a snake outside <laughs> and, and that anaconda is going to come in and it doesn't matter what's out there. We are prepared to be more responsive. If we're not prepared to be responsive, we are less likely to survive. Mm -hmm. So, I developed a, yeah. a saying in ministry and I want to yeah. test it with you. Yeah, please. Because it's true. If there is like a fire in the building, that is an emergency everybody yeah. needs to be aware of. And there are times where, you know, there's a terrible traffic accident or a yeah. child is sick or dying. Yep. Those are those are exceptions. Yeah. But what I what I learned as our church grew was somebody else's emergency doesn't have to be my emergency. Yes. And so they present it as an emergency. Mm -hmm. And I had to go through a, a rational filter where I'm like, hey, 
okay, that's a really bad situation. I'm sorry you're in financial hardship. I'm sorry your marriage is not in a good place. But their marriage didn't start to dissolve at 10 a.m. And they called me at 1 p.m. and it needs to be solved by 4 p.m., right? Like it's been, I don't have to drop what I'm doing to solve their marriage. It's like, well, first of all, if I can help them, I have an opening next Thursday or you know, Sunday after service where I'm happy to see them, but I'm not going to drop what I'm doing right now. Is that a a healthy response to sort of uh, like interpret the level of emergency or drama that someone is doing? And even if it is appropriate for me to deal with it, I ended up outsourcing a lot of that stuff down the road. But like just to disentangle myself from somebody else's emotional state or what do you think? Your emergency, their emergency is not your urgency. It does not have to match it. You do not, you will have a physiological response. Mm -hmm. It does not mean you have to match theirs. Right. Right. And that's a really important lesson. If they're coming in at a 10, you're going to have some response. Sure. But you're not necessarily have to meet them with a 10. Mm. And, you know, and there's boundaries you can set up of going like ahead of time. It's like if I have a friend who I know is a, deep catastrophizer and they really focus on the negative and they're just going to come over and they're just going to vent. I might say, Hey, I got 10 minutes for you, love. Like that's all the time I have. And then, or Hey, I'm happy to talk, but we need to do it on a walk so that I don't feel stuck in one place while we're processing. Mm -hmm. And Hey, here's another thing is I don't have to enable them. I don't have to throw logs on their fire. They're saying this whole story about so-and-so did this and so-and-so did that. I could just be like, that sounds tough. Period. Period. They don't need, I don't have to give more than that. And I can walk away. If, yeah. if boundaries are not enough, yes, in your walking away, you will trigger their isolation, their pain, and you will become the target of their sense of victimness. Persecution. Yep. Like, and their persecution. Oh, Scott's not a good friend. He's yep. not an empathetic yep. person. Yeah. Mm. And that is okay. You will survive and you will thrive without the excess stress in your life. They will be themselves. <laughs> they will be okay in some <laughs> regard. Yeah. It is okay for you to take power of your own life. You are not helping them by simply staying in the enabling position. So what I've found, tell me whether this is unique or true or a general pattern or nuance it as you will, is that when I've done that, and I've done that, I've tried to, you know, somebody's 10 doesn't have to be my 10. It maybe is a three or, you know, like the example of a marriage or a financial crisis. It's like, I'm sure that person feels it right now at a 10, but it's taken a long time to build I can't solve it by one o'clock. Let's meet on Wednesday or hear the people who can serve. What I found is that the drama addicts, eventually you get a reputation for like, oh, Carrie's kind of level-headed. He's he's probably not going to give us what we want. And if they're truly a drama addict and they've got a crisis a week, they're going to go somewhere else because they can't get a toehold. Is that typical? Yeah. If you won't drama bond with them, you're out. Drama bond. If you won't drama bond, you're not a good friend. You're uh-huh. not a good support system. You're not uh-huh. someone who really sees them. Yeah. You know? 
Yeah. They're not going to get what they quote unquote need out of you. Right. So right. yeah, like I, Ooh, I'm a tough therapist, you know, like I, <laughs> I have a lot of tools and I am not interested in hanging out with people. It's like crisis hop. That is a boundary of mine. And um, mostly because, I mean, and I have not every single client I've ever had who's addicted to drama and they have probably sought me out because I am. Mm-hmm. Um, has never felt like I didn't see them because I have right. so many tools to be like, oh, let's take a moment here. I noticed that as we started to settle and as you started to settle in your body, that before we could complete that settling, we went on to the next subject. Just curious what happened here. Now, I'm going to interrupt it, but I'm going to interrupt it in a way that's been you know, recognizing and curious and, and not blaming and not shaming, you know, um, if, and I'm tough when I say I will interrupt someone's pattern like that. I will not let them just crisis hop because A, they are harming themselves. Hmm. It's in the same way if I see that they are massively drunk and just saying, here, I'm going to pour you another drink. Right. So let's get really practical. I want to go through a few scenarios. Sure. uh, And this has been so helpful. The boss who's a drama addict, because I get that DM so often. It's like, look, I'm not the senior leader in our organization, but my my boss just goes from crisis to crisis, you know, flare up to flare up. Always something wrong. Uh, The coworker, who is that way? And then the inbound. You know, if you're leading a lot of people, the inbound could be people in your church, customers, clients, in businesses, right? I think we covered that a little bit. Let's start with the, uh, you know, you're pretty regulated, but your boss is a little crazy. (laughs) What what do you do? Run. (laughs) Get another (laughs) job. Uh Um, Look, we're talking about power dynamics here, and it gets really tricky. your boss might have gotten to where they are because they thrive off stress and it's perceived as a strength. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. They, they have a high tolerance for it, so they seem like they've got things under control even though they're always right. in it. They're, I'm going to be honest. I've, I've been asked this question before by you know, a lot of big you know, media sources that are like, mm that focus in business and it is a really tough position. You have to set your boundaries. You have to go, this is not me. This is not personal. How am I resourcing myself? They're in their crisis. How do I go back to my grounding practices? How do I do my breath work? How do I do my visualizations that bring me to a more settled place? How do I not enmesh with their crisis? I know it's contagious, but how do I not enmesh with it? If I have a history of codependency, I'm going to mesh like crazy. How do I not mesh? How do I visualize that there is a watery space, a buffer between me and my boss that they can't get through? And how do I come back to that every time they try to breach it? Mm. So it's about really resourcing yourself and realizing this is a power dynamic is the challenge of hierarchical power dynamics anywhere. If your pastor is addicted to drama, you know, whether or your boss is addicted to drama or the leader in your organization is addicted to drama, there is a serious power dynamic that you may not be able to tackle. 
And if you don't enmesh with them, you yeah. might get passed over the promotion or terminated, right? 100%. Like those are real risks. Yeah. Is, real is there risk. any way, because this is probably the most FAQ I get, the most frequently asked question. Yeah. People are like, well, I want to help my boss get better. No, no. no. Okay. No, do not, no. do not. Okay. I'm going to give you one thing. Okay. Buy my book, huh. anonymously send it to them. That is the only help you are allowed to do. Okay. Yep. Anonymously, right. anonymously, right? Because if it's attached to you, yeah. If it's attached to you, yeah. I mean, I've got some strategies like ask questions and all that. But at the end of the day, I always talk about the glass ceiling. Like eventually, you may not be able to rise any higher in the organization. Eventually, you might have to just cut it and go and find a healthier workplace. And you would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I'm going to be really clear with you. This is a tough addiction to navigate. Right. From an outside it's so normalized, right? It's, it's so normalized. It is extraordinarily hard to recognize for the individual. And it is extremely, you are asking someone, you like, quote unquote, want to fix them. You are asking them to give up their survival responses. Mm-hmm. You are asking them to give up their survival responses. The answer is no. I have done, trained thousands and thousands of hours. I have worked with client patients for thousands and thousands of hours to be able to be as skillful as I am. And it is still tricky. Yeah. I just, I want to like give you as much grace to say that's not your job, unfortunately, and you're not going to be able to do it by yourself. Wow. That's honest. I mean, on one hand, we all live in this utopian world where we have a conversation and people get fixed, but um, what about a, a coworker? Yeah. Let's go there. That's a, a little easier. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's someone you share a cubicle with or an office with yeah. or someone you have to do project management with or you're on the same task and they're just like, always got something going on. There's yeah. always something. What do, you, what do you do with that person? Yeah, it's, it's some of the same tools, as I said before, but it's easier because mm-hmm. the power dynamics aren't there. Right. Like, right. even if it's like literally... I scoot my chair slightly to the left just to feel more space. Mm. Like that, that, that tiny little action can feel empowering in your nervous system. I can have things in my cubicle that give me a sense and remind me of my own peace, that remind me of my own comfort and safety. I do not participate in the gossip. Do not participate mm. in it. When they come to talk to you about it, just say, I hear you. Do not add, do not try to say that, hey, I don't gossip because that's just going to agitate them more. Yeah. Try that. Yeah. Yeah. It's really (laughs) about minding your business and your business is you. And and, and if you're in a business, the business is actually your work. (laughs) So it's kind of like what we talked about earlier. Eventually, if you set up some boundaries, they'll realize I'm not getting anywhere here and they'll probably find someone else. What yeah. about, what about, yeah, okay, say more about that. Well, unless they, unless they, they, they see the challenge and like it. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. It's like, oh, I'm going to convert you. I definitely, as a kid, was like, ooh, you're calm. I am going to mess this up. Like, I was definitely a provocateur. <laughs> that was a conscious thought. Oh, wow. I mean, like, I did stand up comedy. Like, I yeah. loved the idea. Like, I would pick on the person who seemed most like at ease in the, the audience. <laughs> you know? 
Like I knew the people, you could always sense the people who would get on board and like, and, and rile it up and make it really good. And then you could see the people you can make so uncomfortable as the provocateur. I'm not like that anymore. Maybe a little bit on my podcast. (laughs) So, um, okay. What about someone you're supervising? So you're a boss, you're fairly well regulated, but now you've got a staff member, team member, key volunteer who's addicted to drama. What are some, cause there are the power dynamics in your favor. Power dynamics are in your favor and that helps. Um, uh, There's a lot of language that you might say, Hey, I, I noticed this feels really complicated. Um, and I'm wondering if you can talk me through the steps of it together, or I'm going to model what I think is more of a, you know, efficient response. I'm curious, like, as you watch me, what's that like for you? Does that feel aligned? So I might model a more regulated nervous system, a more regulated, and by regulated, I mean a more efficient use of attention and energy. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. So uh, modeling can be a big piece of it of like helping them relearn that what efficiency of energy and attention might look like helping them change their barometer in that way and if you really are investing in them and you care how they're doing not just what they're doing you could read a book together you could read addicted to drama together you could, you could, you could start a book club with my book as the first book no, I mean, we read yeah. books as a team and, oh, yeah. you know, if that was, if that was, I don't think we really have anybody who's addicted to drama on our team, but, you know, I can think of times where I almost hired somebody or that kind yeah. of thing. It, it could be really helpful. Any other tips for, uh, you know, just dealing with the general drama that is life. And I mean, our news cycle feeds on drama, social media feeds on drama, <laughs> uh, family dynamics are often very dramatic and, what do, you, what do you do with all that? And how do you keep your heart? Because, you know, this, yeah. you, you, what we talked about today, just, you know, quoted Jean-Paul Sartre, but Blaise Pascal, you know, man or humanity's chief problem is our inability to sit quietly alone in our room. There's a lot to that, right? There's a lot, a to, lot that. to that. It's a great quote. quote. It it's is. A great quote. And, and I've thought about that many, many times over my life. And in my 30s, I couldn't sit quietly alone in my room. And I'm learning to do that in my 50s. But... You know, that takes discipline and practice and you have to get really, really comfortable with all of your feelings and not getting entangled in other people's drama. And it's, yeah. it's work. Yeah. I mean, that quote is, is, is the, the quote for an addiction to drama. It's like yeah. the inability to be quiet. In the, it's not like it's just an inability to be quiet. It's just, it's that the quietness is a pathway to being in touch with yourself and the feelings and all the experiences that have been there. And that doesn't feel safe. Mm-hmm. So notice in your life, where are the places that take you away from peace? Mm-hmm. Like just as a one week experiment. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm watching the news. I need to be informed, but that's taking me away from my peace. Okay, I'm scrolling through social media. I want to keep up with my friends, but that's taking me away from my peace. Mm-hmm. So if I can not only recognize where I'm being taken away from my peace, but start to build tolerance for peace. It's not that, and that's a titrated process. It's like, what's the littlest amount of calm that is okay in this moment? Can I add, can I settle a little bit more? Can I relax a little bit more? Can I get a, 
be with the quietness one second more, not 20 minutes. Can I meditate for one second? Can I meditate for two seconds? And we're building up the muscle of tolerance for peace. And then you have even more awareness of going, look, I got to limit my news. I got to limit my family time. I got to limit my social media time because these are all things that are challenging and limiting my peace, which so many of us say we want, but so many of us have the tolerance for. Yeah. Mm. It's a good word. It's a good word. Any, um, we have a lot of young leaders who are starting things. Or rather, so many of us don't have the tolerance for, sorry. Yeah, yeah no, no, that's fine. I think I knew what you meant. Um, we have a lot of young and aspiring leaders who are starting things. Are there practices you can have early on to kind of drama-proof what you're building? Oh, I like that. The ground up. Or I like that title, yeah. drama-proof. Drama-proof. That'll be the follow-up book. <laughs> um. So the question is, how do we prevent drama for ourselves? Yeah, when you're building something from the ground up, are there particular best practices to make sure that this doesn't become part of the culture? Yeah, I mean, look, I'm an entrepreneur and I I have several businesses and I I lead a big team. I lead many big teams, actually. (laughs) And I have zero drama in my staff. Mm. But, But part of that is, is I trust my gut at this point. Because I'm like, when I'm hiring, I'm like, no, no, they seem so lovely, but I, I know the, the, the stirring that lies beneath. So that, that's one thing for me is like, I've really learned to trust, um, having had a lot of time and practice of, of where there might be potential for drama. And I set up really clear communication channels. We talk about our feelings. I know it's weird. And in business, but like, you know, I have my, you know, right after this, I have my Wednesday meeting where we spend the first 20 minutes checking in. How are you? How was your week? You know, and people are vulnerable in it because we've set this, the, the, the environment that this is a safe space to process. You know, I did that in the beginning. I've been like, I'm having a really tough day. I, I um, felt really rejected by this media source about my book you know, or something, whatever. Um, and, and so modeling the, the willingness to be in contact with oneself and you'll start to notice those who avoid it. And you'll start to notice the strategies to which they avoid it with. And that's helpful information. So, um, you know, helping people, supporting people to be in touch with their feelings or needs, having spaces and places and people to talk to in a workplace or in a church, or wherever it is, or in a temple, or wherever, you know, that they can be um, supported with time, space, permission to not have an exaggerated response, but to actually be with the underlying feeling that that exaggerated response is distracting them from. Hmm. Wow. Sounds like a good intake process there, for sure. Well, um, any other final words? Final I, I think, you know, it's just one of empathy, which is for those who are addicted to drama, they're, all, they're, they're, all, they're just trying to find their way back home to themselves. Yeah. And there are 
unfortunately, a lot of survival mechanisms and strategies that prevent them from doing that. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, we all want to just be at home in ourselves. And when your sense of home, whether it's your birth home or your early environment or your body, has been a place of a lot of pain, we ha- then it makes sense we will have avoided that. Mm-hmm. And yet there's an innate desire to come home. And, and that is the healing path that just you modeling your own, he- like your own comfort in yourself might support someone else in doing the same. There's a lot here in this hour and a bit that I think can be unpacked over many, many years. I'm so grateful for it. The book, by the way, is called Addicted to Drama. It's available everywhere. Here, let me get this right <laughs> for YouTube. It's available everywhere you can get a book. It's a great, uh, great, great book. I really enjoyed it. Extremely well-researched. And tell us uh, your different channels today and where we can yeah. find you online, Scott. Yeah, absolutely. So um, my website is probably the the hub of all my mm-hmm. my happenings. Uh, so that's dr. Scott Lyons, D-R-S-C-O-T-T-L-Y-O-N-S.com. Yeah. And you can take, there's some quizzes there where you can see, am I addicted to drama? Do I know someone addicted to <laughs> Use drama? Use at your own risk. Okay. <laughs> there's, there's more information about the book and links to the book. There's, um, there's access to my podcast there, which is, you know, unpacks the book and other hmm. subjects in a very um, spicy, fun way. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I'm also on social media, especially on Instagram at, uh, yeah. at Dr. Scott Lyons as well. Scott, thank you so much. I've, I've learned a lot today and really grateful for your work. Thank you and for thank being you. here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Well, that didn't disappoint, did it? If you want more, we have just revamped our website and we have better than ever show notes. So you can go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 589, or simply head on over to the podcast tab at kerryneuhoff.com and you will find everything there, including transcripts for this. And I want to thank our partners. I'm going to tell you what's coming up, man. We have, wow. I am so excited to finally get Kevin Kelly on this podcast. But first, I want to thank our partners, ServeHQ. You can check out ServeHQ.church for easy to use resources that will help you onboard and keep the best volunteers. And by my Art of Leadership Academy, let me coach you. I do that personally through the artofleadershipacademy.com. Super easy. We have an app that makes it super easy. You're a click away from the advice that you're looking for and the best people always get the best coaching. So check it out at theartofleadershipacademy.com. Next episode, Kevin Kelly the most interesting man in the world, according to Tim Ferriss. And we have a wide-ranging conversation on increasing your optimism, what he learned from time travel. That's a fascinating conversation. Why the myth of progress isn't a myth. A thousand true fans, if you've ever heard of that, I've talked about it and shared it so many times, and he updates that. And the power of remaining astonished. He is so wise. And here's an excerpt. There was a tip I heard from Alvin Toffler, which I really loved is when he was doing the same thing, he would always duck into the adjacent ballroom where there was an entirely different conference happening, usually on something he knew nothing about. Of course, yeah. And you attend that, and you learn so much. It's like it's like picking a book at the library out of random, and you just like, you get into it. And so... Um, 
So there are, so I do that with YouTube. YouTube is my mm-hmm. version of that. Of heading into these little subcultures on YouTube that I know nothing about makeup videos. I have really no interest in it whatsoever, but I'm curious about it. And it will just tell you so much. I am astonished in that way. So that's, you know, what I would suggest to stay young is dip into some YouTube subcultures and be ready to be astonished. So that's next time. And if you subscribe, you won't miss it. And if you are listening to this, as about mm, 25 to 50% of you listening to this haven't subscribed, would you do that? Because we're going to bring you not only Kevin Kelly, we're going to bring you Richard Foster, John Acuff, Arthur Brooks, Dave Ramsey, Mike Todd, Judah and Chelsea Smith, John Christ, Professor John Lennox on AI, John Burke, and a whole lot more. Lots of Johns this fall on the podcast. Anyway, we're going to have a lot of fun on it. And if you subscribe, well, you never miss a thing. And if you did enjoy this, please rate and review it and share it with a friend. Really grateful for that. Also, before you go, please sign up for my On The Rise newsletter. It is something I send out every Friday. It's the most opened email of the week that I send. And people are telling me they love it. It's something I started in January of 2023. You can go to ontherisenewsletter.com. I have so much fun putting this together. I put some faith articles in there, just stuff on sort of, you know, how the church is doing or what the trends are. But then I also put some really curious things into On The Rise. I may put articles in there on how to recognize AI deepfakes or uh, the science of color or denominational decline or a hundred of the best photographs ever taken without using Photoshop and a whole lot of other things. Uh, I just, things that really catch my attention, I bring them to you. It's short, it's easy to subscribe, easy to unsubscribe if it's not for you. So check it out. Go to ontherisenewsletter.com and I can visit you there as well. That'll be a lot of fun. Well, we're back next time with a fresh episode. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope our time together today has helped you identify and break a growth barrier that you're facing.